Well, like Scott said, we're doing a series called Do You Really Believe? And what we're looking at in this series is we're looking at a verse in each of the New Testament books. So the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then it goes into a bunch of letters. And what we're doing is we're looking at some verses that are very familiar. Um, If you've been around the Bible, they'll be very familiar. Some of them will be familiar even if you haven't spent a ton of time around the Bible. Like a part of the phrase in this week's verse in Luke 9.23 is a figure of speech nowadays. Take up your cross. You've probably heard that when somebody has to do something difficult. Or it's not really difficult, like cleaning the bathroom. I just got to take up my cross and scrub the toilet. Um, There's verses and phrases like that throughout the Bible that have come into our everyday speech. And I think partly for that reason and partly because if you spend time in the church, if you spend time around the Bible, some of these verses that are mentioned oftentimes, um, as I said last week, it's a little bit like the background you choose for your phone. You usually, oftentimes people choose that because it's a a favorite picture or a favorite memory, and so they want to see it regularly. But how often do you look at that picture on the background of your phone? Like, really look at it and really remember what was there, why that was meaningful. That's kind of what we're doing with these verses, is taking a pause and looking at some of these verses that are fairly familiar that you may, some of them will be new, um, some of them to you perhaps, but many of them are very common um, to many of us and probably like if some of you that grew up like going to Sunday school or Awana or kids programs, you probably even have many of these, have memorized many of these, like some of, many of these verses I know we've had our kids memorize. I don't know if they could say them now, but at some point when they were little, they memorized many of them. Today, we're looking at Luke 9, 23 is our verse. And it says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We'll look at a few more verses. But this passage, um, if you have a Bible with you, you could open it to Luke chapter 9, and you'll see um, that some of the events that happen before and after this are right before uh, Jesus says this, he does a miracle and he feeds 5,000 people with one little boy's lunch. It's amazing. He does a miracle. And then shortly after that, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter very famously says, you are the Messiah. Jesus commends him for that. And then right after that, Jesus predicts his death. Like, the disciples, by the way, were surprised when it happened. They didn't expect it. But Jesus said this to them. He says, it's necessary that I suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. And then he says our passage. If you look in Matthew, the same thing happens in 16, and the order is almost the same. You know, and by the way, if you're ever concerned about the order of the events in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not like being aligned, like actually in legal testimony, it's actually considered to be a sign of strength of an eyewitness account when 
when the, the specific, the important parts are the same, but maybe the order gets jogged around because how the, our memories work in our brain is fairly unique. So when that happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't be worried that it's inconsistent. It's actually a sign in legal testimony, if you go talk to lawyers, of why we should believe it all the more. Because different people will have different things catch their attention. That'll be more prominent. They might get that order a little bit differently. So if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they'll see that this order happens, and then shortly after this happens, then Jesus reveals himself in a profound way. I won't be able to get into preaching this. It's called the transfiguration to three of his disciples up on a mountain, and he reveals him in in an even deeper way. Our verse this morning is, the, the, the title this morning is Denying Yourself is Necessary. Do you and I really believe that? I think it's a good question to ask because we live in a part of the world and in a time in the world's history where we do not have to deny ourselves ever if we don't want to. It's just true. It's part of our culture. We do not have to. And, in, and actually, more than that, we're encouraged not to. We're encouraged not to. We're actually encouraged to feed yourself, entertain yourself, delight yourself, please yourself, make yourself happy all the time, that's almost maybe one of the highest goods, perhaps the highest good. And it's not an uncommon experience. It's just we seem to be in a time and place in history where it's that, that message is even louder. And we're in a time of prosperity where actually we can do it. Past times when you're less prosperous and you barely have enough to eat, <laughs> it's a little bit different, right? Denying yourself takes on a different tone. Jesus repeated this theme not just in this one instance, though. In this account that happens right after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and right after Jesus confess, or Peter confesses Christ as Messiah and right after Jesus predicts his death, that one instance where Jesus says this thing to his disciples and actually this particular um, passage was more than likely directed out from his disciples to other people who were there watching um, and, and waiting, um, he repeats it often this theme of denying yourself. He repeats it in Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 14, John, Luke chapter 17, and John chapter 12, just a couple of them. You'll probably, if you go hunting for, in Jesus' words for this theme, you'll find it a lot more often. It's an important theme of Jesus' teaching. If you and I want to follow Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, you might be here because you want to follow Jesus, or maybe you're here because you're interested in figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. Whatever the case is, this teaching by Jesus is really important for us to understand, and I would say believe. Here's my summary of my message. A sermon in one sentence is this, that following Jesus requires a radical and regular denial of centering around self so that I might find a true, lasting, fulfilling life in him. I'm going to say it again. Following Jesus requires a radical and regular denial of centering around self so that I might find a true, lasting, fulfilling life in him. I think we want a fulfilling life. I was reading in the Psalms. Actually, I mean reading in the Psalms for the year. I think I'm not going to get too far out of the Psalms. But I read Psalm uh, 20 this morning. And I read this verse. 
text. I don't have it on the screen because I already sent my PowerPoint in, but I'm going to share this verse because it's, it's relevant. This verse says this. It's a prayer. May God give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. May he give that to us all, that we would have a fulfilled purpose in life. When it comes to Jesus, you and I must ask this question. First of all, it's, it's implied by Jesus' first phrase. It says, he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow me, if you want to, you're invited. He actually, it's very specific in another of the accounts, I can't remember if it's Matthew or Mark, that he turns to the rest of them, not just the 12, and says this to the crowd that's around. If anyone of you wants to follow after me, which was actually, I won't get into it, but a pretty profound invitation. In those days, Jesus was considered a rabbi, and rabbis, or many other teachers, and they selectively chose who got to follow them. It was kind of like getting into a top college, if you got selected. And so that Jesus would turn to everyone who was standing there without knowing their background or pedigree and say, if anyone wants to, you can, was a huge invitation. It was very countercultural. Well, Jesus asks, uh, we have to ask, do I want to follow Jesus? That's the first question. Do I want to? And it's all right if you're at a place that you aren't sure if you want to. That's fine. I bet some people in the crowd weren't sure if they wanted to. And then after he said what it required, there's like, I'm going to have to really think about that. If you want to follow Jesus, we have to ask that question. And then the next question is, especially after what he says, which is what we're going to look at this morning, is that we have to do a cost-benefit analysis. (laughs) Does the benefit... And in this case, the eternal benefit outweigh the temporal, our time on earth, does it outweigh the temporal, sometimes very painful, often faith-stretching cost of denying myself in order to follow him? Is the cost-benefit make me lean towards, yes, I do want to follow Jesus? That's really what we're asking in this passage. Does it make sense to you and I? Do I want to do it? So let's look at this verse, and we'll go a couple phrase by phrase through it and make a few observations. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him. And I got ahead of myself a little bit. You and I are invited to follow Jesus. He doesn't demand it. He doesn't command it. Although if you want to have a life that is, as Psalm 20 says, where you have your purpose fulfilled, I'm contending that that's the best place, perhaps the only place, to really completely and definitely eternally find the fulfillment of your purpose. But he's not demanding it. He's, he's inviting us. And so then we're, we're invited to think about, am I persuaded by the goodness and by the grace and the love and the truth of what Jesus teaches and represents enough that I want to look into and begin to follow after him and what he says. That we get invited, is, as I said, was pretty countercultural. It seems to you and I like everyone should get to because we're kind of in a time and age where everyone should have the opportunity to do everything that they want to, right? But in this time and age, if you got invited... To follow a rabbi, it was like whatever your top college that you're trying to get into or whatever your dream job is that you want to have, you're offered it. 
That's kind of what it was like to follow a rabbi if you wanted to follow him and he invited you. But Jesus says anyone who wants to can. And that word want uh, in the Greek, let's just look at a couple of the meanings of it. It's to will, as in I I have a a volition that I'm going to will, a desire to choose to do it. I have it in mind. I intend or I'm resolved or determined to do it. It also has, like I said, to do with to desire or to wish or to love or to like a thing or to be fond of doing a thing, to take delight in it or pleasure in it. So it's all of those things. Do I want to follow Jesus? You know, you and I have an organ in the middle of our chest. It's our heart. And without it working properly, we will die if it stops working or if it starts to not work properly, we will, our health will begin to get worse and worse and eventually we will die. And when we do die, our heart stops beating. Physically, that's what it means to be alive. Your heart has to function or else you won't be able to live. In another way, and many people have described it this way, our heart metaphorically, maybe spiritually, maybe volitionally, is our wanter. Want-er. It's not a real word. Wanter. It's our wanter. Our heart is what wants something. Desires. And following Jesus starts with wanting. It's why Jesus talked about the heart so often, because he knows that's where it starts. It starts with wanting. So, when I was a young man which is several decades in the review, um, I began to follow Jesus, and I began to think, I was raised in a home where Jesus was lifted up. I, I believed Jesus. I would say to some degree I followed Jesus, but in college is when I decided I want to follow Jesus. I want to make a decision to make him the person that I'm going to follow. And every person has to do that. All of, I have six kids. All of my kids will have to do that sometime in life. Every one of your kids, if you're raising them to know and love Jesus, will have to decide to do that. And usually it's not without some tension. And there was some tension for me too. But I decided I wanted to. But I kind of got things twisted not too, not too far off of deciding that. I, I actually got things a little bit twisted for probably a decade, more or less, that I would get off. And what I realized, looking back, is I became devoted to being devoted. You know what that is? It's the difference between being devoted to Jesus, someone that you love and that you are motivated to want to find. I'm actually devoted to my effort to be devoted to Jesus. Self-sufficiency is really what I'm talking about that I'm going to do this really, really well, because I have always had a drive to excel and do well, whether it was academics or anything else. And so if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it really well. And being devoted to being devoted is not the same as being devoted to a person. It took me quite a long time to realize that. I remember multiple times in prayer when I would be asking for Jesus to help me grow in a certain way or overcome certain sins in my life or to become more of his man in some way. And I remember more than once in him saying something to me like this, do you want that more than you want me? And my honest answer was actually yes. Do I want to follow Jesus? That's the first observation we have to make. Let him, Jesus says, let him, let you and I, any of us are willing. Secondly, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. 
and this is where the point, the main point of our sermon comes out, is that denying yourself is necessary. Jesus makes it really clear. It's absolutely necessary. If our heart is a wanter, and I believe that it is, one of our first and earliest wants is for self-rule. We want to be the king or the queen. Now, you do not have to raise your hand. I'll raise mine, but you don't have to raise yours. Does anybody have or have they had a king baby or a queen baby in their house? You know what I mean by that? We joke about it with some of our friends. This is a little one, usually the youngest one. Let's just say always the youngest one. And they very loudly proclaim their wants and demands, maybe to such an extent that it begins to have an influence in the whole, what they see as their kingdom, which is their family. And everybody should know about what they want and what they need all of the time. And for the sake of peace and quiet, which is kind of the highest value of the true king or queen of that kingdom, sometimes there's a little more appeasing of king baby or queen baby's desires. Uh, That is a parenting seminar that I'm not going to get into. I will say this, that it's harder to see it in yourself when it happens in your own home than it is to see it in somebody else's. It's actually really easy to see it somewhere else. And it's really hard to see it in yourself, but other people see it. And if you have other kids, they definitely see it. I'm going to just say this without diving into parenting is that you and I, I'm sorry to say, are all king babies and queen babies. There is a part of us that still wants to rule. Wants to rule at least our world, the part of us that's closest to us. And maybe we could see like a four-year-old throwing a tantrum because they can't have a cookie as like, okay, that's just them not, you know, being mature. But you and I have a similar sort of response to other things. We just are a couple decades beyond four years old and have learned how to make that more socially acceptable or hide it from ourselves. Uh, William Barclay is a commentator that I've appreciated over the years. I don't subscribe to all of his theology. Actually, there's very few commentators that I do. There's some things I significantly agree with, disagree with in his commentaries. But he, has, he writes in a modern, or I say, should say sort of like a layman's ter- terms. He's uh, been gone from the earth a number of decades, I believe. But he says this about this passage. He says, to deny oneself means in every moment of life to say no to self and yes to God. I like that. To deny oneself means once, finally, and for all to dethrone self and to enthrone God. I used to think about it that way. Like I had a throne in my heart. Who's on the throne? Am I on the throne directing my life or is Jesus on the throne directing my life? I like that. I don't like as much his next phrase because I think it can be confusing. To deny oneself means to obliterate self as the dominant principle of life and make God the ruling principle. Now, I I appreciate the sentiment of it, but I think what can get confusing, at least for me, is when you use a term like obliterate self. Because Jesus says other things. Last week, we were just, last week we covered the great commandment and we were told to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why it gets confusing, because which self are we talking about? The self that we're supposed to deny or the self that we're supposed to love, right? So 
For that reason, I would just like to choose false self, which is not really based on what is true, and true self. Love your neighbor as yourself is over here. Deny yourself is over here. This is the part of us that is prone to lies, temptation, self-deception. This is the part of us that's open to love truth. St. Irenaeus said this. I think I said that right. I might not have. The glory of God is man fully alive. I think that's true. And so somehow we have to meld together this idea of denying ourselves and also being fully alive in Christ. And I think it's actually easily married when you look at what Jesus did and what Christianity is built around is the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected. In order for the true self to live, the false self has to die. In order for us to experience and know Jesus as we do now, he had to die that he might be risen again. Psalm 37, 4 is another one of these passages that would make us like, okay, how do these two verses go together? How does denying yourself go together with Psalm 37, 4? Psalm 37, 4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, of course, an easy way to understand this is that choosing to delight myself in God about, above all other things is, means that I'm going to say no to things that might take his place at the top of my delight list. That's, that's kind of how it goes together. Our heart, our wanters, they move toward some, satis, some sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. And what Jesus is saying is that you're going to have to deny every other source of fulfillment and satisfaction if you want to follow me and choose to put me at the top of that list. Culture says, as I've said, pursue whatever you want, please yourself, entertain yourself, distract yourself, fulfill yourself, comfort yourself, whatever else, yourself. And Jesus says, all of that has to be put to the side and instead put me at the very top of that list. He gets a little more firm. I'm not going to say dramatic, but it sure feels that way. Deny himself sounds like I can, I think I can figure out how to do that. The next phrase, it's a little more intense. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And how I'm, the observation I'm going to make here is that taking up self sacrifice is a daily choice. And I'm using that sacrifice specifically because sacrifices in the Old Testament were things that died on the altar. Self-sacrifice, the part of us that wants to rule, that we have to allow to die so that Jesus can raise us to true life, is a daily choice. Now for you and I, we have crosses in our churches, and we have crosses on our neck, and we have crosses on paintings on the wall, and crosses on mugs that we held, and stuff like that. And it means something profound to us because the cross means something really profoundly loving. Someone did something for me on that. But the cross, for these people who are listening, Jesus hadn't done that yet, and the cross was something that meant something very different. Probably at least a handful of them in the crowd, if not many of them, knew exactly what the cross meant because they had seen crosses with people on them. 
It was one of the Romans' preferred methods of not only executing somebody, but humiliating them and causing them to endure extreme suffering as a way of keeping control of people. So you were crucified naked on purpose so that you would be completely humiliated. You died very slowly, completely exposed, so that you suffered and the people watched you suffer. And eventually you died. And the people who were listening knew that's what Jesus was saying. And if you were kind of like, and I'm not sure if I should, if it's worth it to follow Jesus or not, some of us probably would have been like, uh, I've seen one of those, see ya. <laughs> I'm out. The possibility for us to be willing to be humiliated, to endure suffering, perhaps even to die, seems far off. It wasn't far off for Jesus' disciples. And actually, if you learn about the church around the world, it's not that far off for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, who we will spend eternity in heaven with, right now are experiencing that around the world. Speaking of of the suffering and death. Thankfully, I'm thankful that I'm not the only one who sort of is like, I, you know, if I have had the brutal upfront understanding of what Jesus was asking, I might have to reconsider because Peter does it for us. Um, Peter in, in Matthew 16, when Jesus predicts, this is Matthew, um, Luke was really nice and not to include this story in his account. It's kind of like he did Peter a favor. Like, I won't put that in there, but Matthew's like, no, I got to do all the details. Matthew 16, when Jesus, right before Jesus says to take up your cross in Matthew 16, um, the conversation, Jesus, so this is, I just love the organization of this. Jesus asks Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And and Peter rebukes him. (laughs) Like, I mean, this is like a conversation. Like, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, okay, good job. I'm going to have to go suffer and die. And Peter says, never! <laughs> okay, so is he the Messiah or not, Peter? Are you the boss or is Jesus the boss? Thank goodness for Peter. When you and I are like that, he's shockingly arrogant. Right after declaring Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, he rebukes the Savior. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And he's really not saying it to Peter. He does. But he's really saying it to the temptation that is coming out of Peter's mouth from the pit of hell, which he had already faced. The same temptation that Satan himself tried to get Jesus to fall into when he was offered the kingdom without suffering. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Get behind me, Satan. And he says it again when it comes out of Peter's mouth because that's where it's coming from. Friends, you and I are going to be asked to daily be willing to die to our self-rule in order to follow Jesus. Do you remember when you were a kid, kids that are in here, maybe you've played this where you play follow the leader, and the person who is the leader is, like, going to go walk around. And then they're like, like, maybe if we're playing in here, some of you boys would like this. If I'm like, okay, follow the leader right now. I'm going to jump from here, and you have to land on that front pew right there. Who would want to try it? Some of you guys would want to, right? 
the moms would be like, don't do it. And if you land on the front pew, you're still the leader. And if the one behind you lands on the front pew, you still get to play. And then the next guy's like, well, I'm going to walk across that pew over there to the end. And if you walk across the top of that pew all the way to the end, you're still in the game. But if you fall off, you're out, right? So follow the leader. is like, I, whatever I do, you have to do. And if you make a mistake, you're out of the game. And then if the leader falters, but the person after him does it, then they get to be the leader. Jesus, you know, there's lots of leaders in the world today. Sometimes we call them influencers. I don't really know if they're influencers, but they like to call themselves influencers. They probably are having influence on us. Leaders, I've heard leadership is influence, so I guess if they have influence and they're a leader. But many of these, many leaders and influencers in our day, the people who we're following, are really directing us toward pleasure, power, comfort, safety, self-sufficiency. And Jesus is directing us in a different direction. He's directing us to being willing to suffer, to being willing to be humiliated, even being willing to die, just like he was. Because that's what he did. If we're going to follow him, then we will want to be, have to, if we're going to consistently follow him, we'll have to keep doing the same kind of things he did. Okay, then he said to them all, we'll read it one more time, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he says this, And this is where the cost-benefit analysis starts to make sense. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. The last observation is that your life depends on your choice. Again, when talking about the word life, we're not necessarily just talking about physically breathing and our heart beating, although that's part of it. The word for life there is the word suke. It's spelled psyche. It's where we get psyche and psychology and all of that. It actually had a profound, bigger, deeper meaning than just physical life. It was like it's often translated as soul. In fact, older translations of this verse will say soul instead of life. Because we're really talking about the part of you that goes beyond just your body but is still you. It's the part of you that elsewhere in the scripture talks about whether it, it lasts eternally somewhere. If you want to survive only in your physical life, getting that life on this life, in this planet, in this body, to feel good, to accomplish your goals. Jesus says in the end, if that's all you're trying to do, you're going to end up losing it. However, if you'll give that up, that life of trying to get what you want, and you'll put that to death, and you'll follow me, you'll actually save it. You'll actually have something that lasts. So the image that came to my mind just as I'm speaking here is the image of like some seeds. So right now is harvest season. That's probably why all of us are sneezing or having what we're joking this morning. Like I know when school's going to start before school starts because I will just start having crazy allergy fits right around the middle of August and then I know school's about to start when the, when the, when the wheat harvest starts right around that time. Well, if, if I have some wheat in my hand and I want to, hold, to save this, to preserve it, so that I have it for later. All I'm going to have is what's in my hand. And in the end, if I keep holding on to it, it's just going to die and turn to dust. Now, wheat can last a long time. I know they've found wheat that's like thousands of years old that's still viable if it's preserved right. But it won't last forever. However, if I put that seed, those seeds in the ground, which means those seeds are going to be, I'll use the term, obliterated, 
Not really, right? It's still there. There's still something there. It's just not a seed anymore. It's going to grow into something else. That seed has to die. Actually, I didn't think of this illustration. This is what Jesus said in a different part of the scripture. If you put the seed in the ground and allow it to die, something else can come to life. That's what he says in John 12. And really what self-denial and taking up your cross daily is being willing to say, Jesus, you can plant me in the ground. That represents death, right? So that you can resurrect me and bring new life out of me. I'm, I'm a, I'll let you do that. I'm not going to hold on to this pile. It means I'm not going to just exist for the here and now. I'm going to try to flourish for now into eternity. And I'll just tell you this. For the people who perked up with the cost-benefit analysis, you know that risk is always required. A decision like this, an investment, there's no guaranteed anything when it comes to investing your money or your life or anything else. There's always a risk. It might even sound like this is like, can't miss. I've done this myself. Like, I got a good, some good advice. There's this company, whatever. He's done all the research. I'm not a research guy, but it'd be good one to invest in. Well, it looks good, and then it goes up, and then it goes down, right? You have to risk that. There's risk in this decision. And most of us would require, even if you're a risk taker, like, I don't mind doing crazy things that might risk my body. Actually, I'm done with that now, but when I was in my 20s, I'd do crazy things. Now I'm just all about self-preservation, help me to get to, get to the finish line, not without being too broken. But there was a time in my life when i take risks like that. But when it comes to this kind of risk, giving up control, giving up my preferences, giving up my dreams, maybe, allowing God to put some of those to death that he might bring something greater to life, that's a lot harder. That requires risk. That requires the risk like planting a seed. Like, I only have one pint of wheat, and I can either grind it and make bread, or I can plant it and trust that I'll have enough wheat for a month, a few months from now. That, that kind of risk. Requires vulnerability. But I'll say it again as the band comes up. You guys can come on up. Here's my sermon in a sentence. Following Jesus requires a radical and regular denial of centering around self. It's required. But the payoff is this. If I do, I will find a true, lasting, fulfilling, and Jesus promises eternal life with him. If I'm willing, if I'm willing to take that risk. So the question this morning is, will I hold on to my own life, stay in control, stay on the throne, or will I lay down my life and trust Jesus to give me true life? That's the question. There's going to be prayer down here after the service, and it might be this morning that something that God's doing in your life is you're like, I've been checking this Jesus thing out, but I think right now he's asking me to lay my life down that he might give me new life in him. Prayer team, Pastor Tom will be able to help walk you through that. It might be that you already know Jesus, but you know that you're in control of most of your life or a specific area of your life, and today is the day Jesus says, I want you to plant that in the ground and allow me to bring what I know is better to life in him. So join us for prayer down here if you'd want to pray about that. Stand right now and I'll close in prayer and we'll sing a song. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being a good Savior. 
Jesus, thank you for walking a path of sacrifice that we might benefit from it. Thank you for even when you were tempted and offered a way out, you said no, so that we might have the chance to even be here, praising you, worshiping you, learning about you. God, denying self is not easy. It's a nice idea. It's a hard, hard practice. Would you give us grace to be able to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow you? Without you, we can't do it. We need you, Jesus. Would you help us to do that today? In your name I pray.